strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. What is this new devilry? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Drums in the Deep, where our fellowship contends with orcs and trolls and a balrog, oh my, as they flee Moria. This is our 14th episode on The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. We will forego all our usual housekeeping and Patreon plugs since we are very thrilled to welcome a special guest, and in my very best Gandalf, a very old friend. Emmett Booth, aka Poor Quentin. Well, I, I can only hope I age as well as Bilbo, although I guess I don't have a magic ring to help me in that. But uh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've been enjoying every episode, and I was just so happy to be here for this one, because as much as I love all three of these movies, I think we got my, my favorite stretch of the trilogy under discussion here today. Oh, yeah. I think everyone views the stuff we're going to talk about today as perhaps the crown jewel of definitely the fellowship, if not the entire uh, film trilogy as a whole. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the work you're doing, where you can be found online, and the podcast that you're running? Sure. So I run a podcast called the Not a Cast Podcast because because I'm just a contrarian fool. <laughs> I run it with with my buddy Jeff Hartline, aka Brendan Beefish, and we're going through the Song of Ice and Fire books, the ones that were adapted into Game of Thrones. We're going through those one chapter a week. We've been doing it for a few years, so we're well into it now. We're into the thick of the third book, Storm of Swords, the one everyone loves the best. The one that has the Red Wedding and Joffrey's death and all, you know, giants riding mammoths, all the all the most badass stuff in the series we're coming up on. So we're having a great time. You can find the, the Nauticast on Podbean at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F.podbean.com. You can also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F where our patrons get early access to our episodes, bonus episodes that we do every month, access to our Slack, a lot of great benefits. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. That's P-O-O-R-Q-U-E-N-T-Y-N, named after a kind of uh, fan-neglected character from A Dance with Dragons in the Song of Ice and Fire series, one who is, who is basically Frodo. So that's, that's, a, that's one, of the, one of the many crossovers between Lord of the Rings and Song of Ice and Fire that keeps you coming back to both. Nice, excellent yeah. segue there. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emmett's podcast is really great. Um, I've actually had the pleasure of guesting on there a couple of times now. Yes, indeed. To talk both A Song of Ice and Fire and about a video game series known as Metal Gear Solid. You may have heard of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, speaking to Emmett's Patreon, uh, one thing he did earlier, I, I guess last year at this point, is that he did a little Patreon series about 
some books called The Lord of the Rings. And that's kind of what gave me inspiration to both kind of start this podcast, to invite Emmett on for this episode specifically, and well, you know, just so I can hear him speak more about Lord of the Rings. My absolute pleasure. I mean, I've loved Lord of the Rings since I was a little kid. I remember my mom reading the first book to me and we could barely make it through the Bilbo's birthday party chapter because we just kept laughing because it's <laughs> it's it's just so funny and all the hobbits you know like un unwilling to stop chanting and trying to puzzle out what Bilbo's exactly saying to them I remember that so distinctly and then as I got a little older and reread them and got into the the more the scope and scale and, and grave tone of it and I think I I so I was like, my mom first introduced the books to me before the movies came out. And then the movies came out and just blew my little mind. I was just the, the perfect age for it. I was uh, 12 and, you know, was a, a voracious reader and was, was like just interested enough in the storytelling to want something as dense and granted this, but also 12 year old boy wanted to, to see heads get chopped off <laughs> and hear a big massive soundtrack. So I was just, I was, I was just in awe. I think I, I dragged my parents back like four or five times that first one when it was in theaters and devoured the extended editions and everything I could get my hands on. So, uh, you know, it's easy for, for nostalgia to give you rose-colored glasses, but I, I only love these movies more when I come back to them, honestly. Do you have uh, any favorite moments from the films besides the Balrog encounter or perhaps any controversial hot takes um, so <laughs> Emily cannot feel alone on this podcast? <laughs> well, I mean... It's only tangentially connected. I don't know how hot take how to take it still is, but I love it when Gandalf comes back. I know like George R. R. Martin was not a fan of that move. I know there were still people who are not not fans of Gandalf coming back, just maybe because because of just how effective this death scene is, and they feel it kind of cheapens it. But I think it enhances an aspect we're going to talk about, which is Gandalf's otherworldliness that's that suddenly comes to the fore, and the kind of the melancholy of him being your best friend, but also not just a different species, but just like a different category and order of being than you are. I think it's, it's, it's really important to emphasize that. Um, favorite moments besides this one, I love the Rohirrim stuff in Two Towers, like that, that wonderful stirring string theme we get and how well performed those characters are. Just the sadness of Theoden gets, gets across really well. Oh, yeah. And uh, and obvious answer, but everything with Andy Serkis as Gollum, I think, is is remarkable. It's a, it's just funny to go back to this and realize, man, this could have worked so poorly. Like Gollum could have been Jar Jar, <laughs> like this could have been like the embarrassing thing that made the movies not work. But instead, it's it's a part everyone references and still uh, talks about to this day. I would love to see the Jar Jar Banks cut of like, especially Return of the King. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah, Gollum just like wanders into the Battle of Pelennor Fields and like trips over an orc. <laughs> I, would, I would love to see it. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you here before we get rolling with our discussion is um, you do a, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast and a Song of Ice and Fire and the Lord of the Rings have, you know, many connective tissues between them. Hal, on your most recent episode, uh, you guys were comparing the Lady of the Leaves and Arya's trek through the Riverlands to Lothlorien to some extent. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how Lord of the Rings informs how you think about A Song of Ice and Fire and how those two pieces are kind of in conversation from your point of view? Absolutely. I think people sometimes make too much of a I don't know, moral distinction or uh, pe people talk about the Lord of the Rings as though it's like naive and blinkered in the Song of Ice and Fire is the needed like corrective of realism. And I think that is a 
distortion of both stories. I think The Lord of the Rings provides a foundation for imagery that George draws from, and George R. R. Martin draws from really strongly in A Song of Ice and Fire. You know, even even uh, reading the the Lord of the Rings chapters that were adapted into this movie, and then and then watching this part of the movie again made clear that I think the the big change isn't so much a different perspective on the world as in terms of style. Like you can really tell that George R. 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 Martin wrote for television, and he has this like this this need to 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 jolt the audience and and shock them. And I think he does incredible work building foreshadowing for his big moments into the infrastructure. So they don't really come out of nowhere, even though they seem they might. But I think you can tell in A Song of Ice and Fire how much George R. R. Martin loves the the tone of Lord of the Rings, that bittersweet, melancholy sense of we're wandering through a place that used to be beautiful and t- singing songs about how it used to be. You know, much much that once was is lost, as Galadriel says uh, in the opening of the film trilogy. And I think you can you can see that across A Song of Ice and Fire, even if the execution is more grimy or metal or just explicit than Tolkien was a lot of the time. But like you look at uh, Brand's chapters, especially in Manu, we had you on for for two different Brand chapters on the Nauticast. And that is his chapters, especially when he gets on the road, are such a love letter to Tolkien and that connection between the individual and the land. So... I, I think it's it, he's a a song of ice and fire is is a is a natural successor, not like a, a critique or deconstruction of Tolkien the way some people talk about it, but as as kind of the next step, a generational next step. And I um yeah we're we're getting in a storm of swords just to the we're almost at the point where Bran is wandering through the north and hearing the stories of his his father's generation and that that stuff is Tolkien to the core. That that love of story and nature comes through real strong. Something stirs deep beneath Moria. Frodo's blade glows blue as orc shrieks echo from below. Boromir rushes to barricade the door, just missing a flight of arrows, but not missing what the orc party has brought. The whole classroom goes, say the line, Bart. (laughs) I I mean, Boromir. My son is also named Boromir. (laughs) They have a cave troll. Gimli says, bring them on. He prefers a straight fight to all the sneaking around. He sets up like a linebacker atop Balin's tomb, two axes in hand. The orcs breaking down the door are met by a volley of arrows from Legolas and Aragorn. Yes, Aragorn, using a damned ranged weapon for once. But then it's a no-holds-barred fellowship on orc violence, complete with decapitations and residual blood on all our company's blades. The large adult son of a cave troll makes his long-awaited entry, smashing the chamber of Mazarbul with every swing of its giant stone club. Sam and Gimli show good spatial awareness avoiding its blows, with a smidgen of slapstick smuggled in there as well. The troll demands most of the attention on screen, and its attention eventually goes to Frodo as they play a game of cat and mouse around a pillar. The troll pulls Frodo out into the open, but here comes Aragorn to the rescue, getting in a spear thrust, and Merry and Pippin hit the troll with rocks. 
I wish I could get this all in one frame and we hang it up as a motivational poster extolling the value of teamwork and solidarity. Together, we can bring down cave trolls. Or not, as the troll bats aside this gnat of an Isildur's heir and goes for the kill on Frodo, stabbing him seemingly deep in the gut. Time slows down for everyone, especially for Sam, as the Fellowship clear the room and finally take down the troll, a joint killing blow dealt by Legolas and Pippin. Hey, my two favorite Fellowshippers, there's hope for that motivational poster yet. <laughs> All eyes turn to Frodo, who's gotta be dead. But nope. I'm alright. I'm not hurt. You should be dead. That spear would have skewered a wild boar. I think there's more to this helmet than meets the eye. Mithril. You are full of surprises, Master Baggins. The Mithril is revealed and everyone in the Fellowship is rightfully wondering where their plot armor is. I'm sure Boromir is mighty chuffed about it. But Sam's relief is legitimately heartwarming, and really, that's what we're all here for, right? Emily speaks to her bad eyes a lot, so I want to balance it out and let you in on how bad my hearing is. Until I watched this scene with subtitles a couple years ago, I had totally misunderstood Aragorn's that spear would have skewered a wild boar line. What I heard, somehow, in my head was, explain what has cured a wild boy, which, <laughs> way off, but also, I made it make sense in my head. If Legolas can speak the way he does, I guess this was fine. Anyways, subtitles, folks. I really recommend putting them on regardless. It's changed how I watch movies, and for the better. And there's a lot in The Lord of the Rings you may have missed between the elvish words or dialogue in the background. Sorry, no time to be on my subtitle soapbox. The orcs have regrouped. To the bridge of Casa Doom, yells Gandalf, and they make for the Great Hall once more. Gandalf's staff again lights the way, this time in haste, but it's an all-out Zerg rush in Dwarodelf. Orcs are pouring out from every single hole in sight. From high in the rafters to deep below, the orc hive is massive, and soon they have the party encircled and seemingly dead to rights. Terror spreads on the face of our party, once again, Billy Boyd gives perhaps the most expressive look of the bunch. But then a rumble and a growl, and a distant orange light flickers. Terror now spreads amongst the goblins, who hightail it out of there, as if the very whips of their masters were behind them. Boromir is the first to ask the obvious question in one of the most iconic exchanges in all of visual mediums. Good lord, what is happening in there? Aurora Borealis? I... Aurora Borealis, at this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. May I see it? No. Sorry, I couldn't resist. You should thank your lucky stars Samwise's dad isn't really in these films, or else you'd have to suffer my steamed ham fast jokes. <laughs> anyway, it's not the Northern Lights, but Durin's Bane, a Balrog of Morgoth which the first time I watched this movie was just a proper noun of a proper noun, but the face Orlando Bloom makes is unmistakable. Legolas, through his long years, has surely seen and heard the worst horrors of this world. He barely batted an eye at the Watcher in the water or the Orc army, but now he's frozen in his tracks, on the brink of a foe beyond even him. Gandalf, not for the last time this episode, tells his companions to fly as the burning light stalks ever closer. 
it's time for Gandalf to hand off temporary leadership to Aragorn because he's literally got bigger fish to fry. Lead them on, Aragorn. The bridge is near. Do as I say! Swords are no more use here. The Fellowship arrives at a long, winding, and broken stairwell. One that our hobbits almost go barreling over but are able to pull up just short. They learn something escaping from Farmer Maggot back in the Shire. Boromir almost also overruns his mark, but Legolas is there to hold him back. Sorry, I'm just loving all this teamwork. The company makes its way down the staircase as Moria crumbles all around them. There is still a flame chasing them from behind, and their progress ahead is halted by a gap in the staircase. Oh, and they are under fire too, as orcs are serenading the crew with arrows. Legolas is quick on the draw, though, and lands an arrow right between the eyes of an orc archer. I love this shot, and we'll come back to it in our cinematography section. In this short puzzle on the stairwell, we once again see this film dole out character work. Legolas leads the way and beckons Gandalf to him first, both to accommodate the wizard's age, but also knowing he's the only one with the power to repel that which hounds them. Gimli refuses to be tossed and makes the leap on his own, though he needs to be pulled up by his beard to safety. Boromir takes some of the hobbits with him on his leap, being the good dad that he is, but the force of weight crumbles the staircase and widens the gap even more. Aragorn and Frodo remain stranded, but now it's time for Strider to show some of his wiles. As the staircase sways and cracks beneath their gravity, he angles Frodo and himself just right to close the gap and make the jump where the remaining members are there to catch them. We get a quick bar of the main fellowship leitmotif in triumph, and they're off again, as the staircase fully crumbles behind them. They finally make it to the bottom, to a hall engulfed in, the f- in fire, and we have come to it at last, the great battle of our time. Or at least, the encounter we've been anticipating all film. The Balrog enters stage right, or stage up, I don't know. He leaps up from behind a wall of fire and lands with menace in front of Gandalf. The shape is hard to make out. Saruman wasn't kidding when he said, wreathed in flame and shadow, as the darkness and smoke make the exact shape of our monster indiscernible. But its eyes and most of all its mouth are not. They are ablaze with reds and oranges, and down that gullet is a literal inferno, I say to foreshadow Emily later on. <laughs> the Balrog stomps after our fellowship, who make the treacherous route over the bridge of Casa Doom a narrow slip of rock with the deepest dungeons of Moria awaiting for anyone who falls off either side. Gandalf pulls up the rear, then takes his position in the middle of the bridge to square up his enemy. The Balrog readies for attack position as it morphs into kaiju mode for this boss battle. The lines that come next are again, for lack of a better word, iconic, and this time, no Simpson switcheroo. I am certain to the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. I'm increasingly on board with Emily's anti-Gandalf propaganda, at least for the books, but man oh man is the wizard fucking undeniable here. He breaks the Balrog sword, 
the latter not knowing that weapon deprecation is on, just like in Legend of Zelda The Breath of the Wild. (laughs) It turns to a whip in its place, a light of flame in its own right. The Balrog hesitates and then plows ahead, but the bridge gives out underneath it. And so the Balrog is vanquished for good as it disappears into the chasm below. The Fellowship are in awe, Gandalf makes a satisfied grunt, and we're on our way out the east gate until a fiery crack rings out from the darkness, louder than any drums in the deep before it. The Balrog wraps its whip around the leg of Gandalf the Grey, who is pulled to the brink, hanging on by just his fingernails. Oh, I should really edit in Darth Vader's No! from Revenge of the Sith after Gandalf's fall. Everyone's awe has turned to shock. Has Gandalf truly fallen? No time to figure that out, though. Orcs have once again closed in and are raining arrows down on our heroes. They make for the East Gate and finally exit the Mines of Moria. Outside, everyone is fucking devastated. The hobbits lay in tears on the ground. Gimli is being held back as if he wants to charge in and kill every orc in Moria as recompense. Legolas's eyes, which see so much, are fogged over with despair. Aragorn, finally, urges the party that they must move on. The party gets up and they prepare to set off again. They seek the woods of Lothlorien, as nightfall comes and with it, the danger of more orcs. Aragorn lastly checks on the ringbearer, the one to whom Gandalf may mean the most. Frodo seems especially detached now, and seems to be separating himself from the Fellowship, an indicator of things to come. We will wrap it up there, because this was all super, super sad, and I'm sure you need a moment too, for pity's sake. So we'll start off our analysis today by handing it over to our guest, Emmett, to give his immediate thoughts and reaction. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of the best stretches of blockbuster filmmaking ever, I think. It's on par with all the iconic George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, James Cameron set pieces that came before it and clearly inspired it. Like this is a, a mashup of Aliens and Indiana Jones and just as good, if not better than both. It exemplifies everything I love about these movies, all the stuff you two have been touching on, the stylistic range, the tone shifts, the balance of world building with emotional character work, and it's all etched into my memory from a young age. My first time watching the movie in theaters, this was the part that that really made me sit up and made my spine tingle. The scale of everything is astonishing, but also the speed. As the situation keeps getting worse, we only get glances at all of the ruins we were lingering on previously. And what makes it so thrilling is it's paying off the menace of the first section of Moria that you guys already covered. This is the catharsis we needed, so it's exciting as well as horrifying. And there are, there are so many different kinds of filmmaking at work here. 
Peter Jackson's getting to play around with goofy horror mechanics, even as he builds to a climax dramatic and grave enough for Tolkien's vision. It's elemental stuff full of light and motion, and it would be so easy and forgivable to lose character in something as smoothly sculpted as this. But it's all keyed in. Everyone's reaction to uh, Frodo getting stabbed especially, and then everything with Gandalf, who you just attach everything to because he seems like the only hope, the only way they could ever make it out of here. And that's what makes it so devastating when they lose him. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's definitely, I think, one of the highlights of modern blockbuster filmmaking. There are very few things I would put on par with it, maybe something from The Matrix or Mad Max Fury Mm -hmm. Road, um, but very little else really compares to the scale and the imagination of what's going on. So we'll start, uh, first of all, with the fight in Balin's tomb. The orcs break in, and we go full-on action sequence with all nine members of the Fellowship, the only time we see them at full strength. And also, from our point of view, the first time we are seeing the film balance the nine characters in question. We've seen a couple set pieces thus far, Weathertop and the flight to the Fords, but this has the most moving parts and has to be staged in a tighter geography. Again, the scene is well lit so we can keep up with everything that's happening, including more dope Legolas shit. Yeah, I mark out for the Mirkwood elf, seen here wielding his two long knives for the first time, or in my video game brain, his melee weapon for the series. Link doesn't get the Master Sword until the Hobbit films. And his arrow shooting has leveled up too, as we see him knocking two arrows at once and taking on the cave troll. We also get another glimpse of the ungodly agility of the elves as he walks up the troll's chain, puts a couple arrows in its cranium, then perfectly dismounts off of it. Tens across the board from the judges. Sam too comes into his own as a warrior of sorts, finding skill in wielding the ancient weapon, a fring pan. Oh, sorry, I meant a frying pan. (laughs) It's hard to imagine our master gardener without it in hand. Sean Astin, too, plays with genuine surprise as well at how natural Sam finds using it in his hands. So I went ahead and translated uh, a frying pan into Quenya, and it is uh, Agnarfion. So if you want to name your sword slash frying pan, there you go, (laughs) attaboy. (laughs) I mean, I don't use my frying pan often because I'm a terrible cook, but it is now known as (laughs) Agnarfion. Uh, The Foley work is pretty commendable, too. The skillet makes much different noises from swords and arrows when thumped against orc skulls. Again, loving the little sounds bringing these films to life. Frodo's part in this was to be harangued by the cave troll, and Jackson deploys a single take as we watch Frodo skirt alongside a pillar to avoid the troll. One cut later, and the troll takes him unawares to drag him out into the open before the whole wild boar skewering thing happens. The Frodo of the books plays on themes of pacifism way more than in the films, but I am now realizing how little is made of Frodo's swordplay or martial skills in the films. He doesn't get some action sequence that centers him like the other hobbits do. His courage and valor is not necessarily one of the battlefield, but in the choices he makes and perseveres through, proverbially doing what he must with the time that is given. And there's a lot of Gandalf to come in this episode, but I did want to call out his dual wielding of his wizard staff and Glamdring, the elvish made hand-and-a-half sword or bastard sword that he wields. To that point, I had never seen someone fight quite like that on screen, helicoptering the staff above his head while his sword pokes and swings beneath it. Here's to whoever did Ian McKellen's stunt choreography. Oh, and as for Glamdring... Let's save that for the Balrog-Gandalf rematch that kicks off the two towers, Middle-Earth's Ali versus Fraser 2. 
so many great character bits and all this chaos with Gandalf and Frodo and Sam, like you were saying. But I, I love best Gimli because he's coming after after grieving for Balin's, you know, sobbing beside the tomb. And then he growls and stands tall atop the tomb in that one ray of light shining down, ready to be the last dwarf to fight and die in Moria. And he's also the star of my favorite shot in this fight. And you were talking about the long take when the troll is pursuing Frodo. And you see a similar thing when the camera holds and then pans to capture the troll taking out multiple orcs while trying and failing to kill Gimli. And it's just, it's so much better that way than if you if you just cut it to bits because you get a real sense of gravity, like literal gravity. Like the camera feels like it has weight and it's a participant in the scene. And that just, that makes your shoulders tense up. And it's incredible in terms of, of integrating the computer generated effects. Like you can, you can feel the troll just barely miss Gimli with his club and hit an orc instead, even though the club isn't real and John Reese davies is. It's just, it's so visceral. Thanks in part to the excellence of the props. Like I was rewatching this and realizing, wow, these, I remember how each of these weapons look. Like, I remember how weathered they look. I remember the light shining off them just because of, of how how well they're built, how well they're filmed. And the sound design really helps, too. It's just, it's so precise. You can feel everything shake and shatter around you. And up until Frodo gets skewered like a wild boar, the tone is actually kind of cartoony for this particular action scene. But it's that's why you need that strong sense of the geography of the room, how tight everything is, the close nature of the combat. That's really what keeps it tense. Yeah, the cartoony aspect is really kind of funny to me, given how kind of grim everything is in the setting. Exactly. Um, we talked about the slapstick with Gimli. Uh, Sam using a frying pan is nothing but comedy. Um, it is just kind of a really goofy scene, and the fact that it has as much narrative and emotional weight in the context that it does is kind of kind of staggering, really. Yeah, and I think this is also really interesting because Moria is one of these uh, locations that is uh, introduced in The Hobbit. Um, and so like in terms of taking this kind of cartoony element, like it is one of these places that, that we see for the first time in, in this part of the story, at least, um, in its first instance and in literally a, a children's book. And, you know, not to say that like The Lord of the Rings is also is not also a children's book, but I think there's like a bit of uh, like that kind of more like afternoon specialty element to The Hobbit. Um than what is in the Lord of the Rings. And so they're really having to take like this, um, th this location that has these kind of like, uh, two very different like tones and try and meet them, like, you know, create a, like a, like a cinematic average of them. And, and I think they do it really, really well because it is like you both said, like something that, um, it can appeal to kids, but it is also something that can scare the shit properly out of adults. I'm glad you mentioned The Hobbit there because I have a question to ask my more learned Tolkien fan friends. Um, is there a difference between goblins and orcs? Uh, the films use them interchangeably here in Moria and then basically stick to orcs through the rest of the films. Um, it's almost kind of a meta way of capturing how uh, Tolkien himself called them goblins in his earlier works before settling on orcs later. Yeah, I, I mean, so... Um the, the the short answer is no, there really isn't um, a difference between goblins and orcs. Um, I know there's been kind of a, a like a latter day effort to to say that the orcs are um, the the bigger goblins and the ones that are closer in appearance to the um, Urukai, um, or the goblins are the ones that dwell in caves, um, and the orcs are the ones that are primarily above ground. None of those like differences actually exist in in the books, at least. Um, so. Orc is kind of like a word that um, Tolkien latched onto and developed not much later, but slightly after he wrote The Hobbit. Um, so you see goblins all the way through The Hobbit, and then he picks up Orc um, from, I think, like, I think it's an old English term, 
Orko, which which means demon, I think. Um, and he actually, I'm pretty sure he has like a paper arguing that um, it's that origin point that explains Orca whales as a name. Anyways, um, so uh, there are a whole bunch of uh, different terms for orcs in, in the Legendarium. And like, I'm now <laughs> going to just shove these in there because, uh, you know, I love talking about the languages. Um, but orcs is like the common speech um, and also Rohir term for the creatures known as goblins or orcs. Um, and it's related to the Sindarin word, like, orc, <laughs> with a harder CH. I'm really sorry. I'm very bad at those, like, glottal stops. Um, and then Quenya uses the Old English uh, orco. Um, and it's interesting because that one's one of the few words that we have in the Legendarium um, in Quenya that is uh, uh, derived from the Sindarin word instead of um, created on its own. And it's because the Noldor elves who uh, created the Quenya language hadn't fucking seen the elves, or the orcs rather, um, until they got to Middle Earth. And uh, the like Sindar elves, the Sylvan elves who spoke Sindarin, had spent lots of time in close quarters with the orcs and so obviously had a name for them. Um, and then in uh, uh, Adenaic, which is like the lay language of Numenor, they're called Uruks, which is where obviously we get like Urukai. Urukai literally just means like orc, orc folk. Um, and that's also, I'm pretty sure, the black speech name for orcs. Um, anyways, uh, all this to say, <laughs> lots of different names, orcs, goblins, all the same thing. Uh, quite an interesting like in-universe etymological history. Um, and I also just want to shout out my one of my favorite places on the internet, which is Parf at Helen, P-A-R-F-E-D-H-E-L-L-E-N, which is this incredible dictionary of the vast majority of Tolkien's languages and the people who run it and maintain it and do all the research for it are absolute heroes. But if you, for some sick reason, enjoy when I talk about these things on the podcast, go check out that website and uh, search things to your heart's content because it is absolutely delightful. Uh, sorry to do a mid-episode plug here, but uh, perhaps is that link available on the blog you launched, Emily? Ooh, hell yeah, it is. Um, and I will also do a quick guide now that you've said this. I will also do a quick guide to some of the uh, various resources out there for learning about the languages of the Legendarium. Yes. Yeah, so um, if you look over at our Twitter, and I'll try to put in the show notes uh, going forward from here. Um, but yes, Emily has taken a lot of our reference materials and some of the research we've done and created a WordPress, uh, I believe in the name, My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Um, and you can find a lot of great uh, information available there. So we'll pivot over to the Balrog, the main event of today's episode, who we will also be talking about through every other section of this podcast episode. This Balrog, of which there may be several, is known as Durin's Bane, or Flame of Udun, as Gandalf calls him. The Balrog of the film stands over 20 foot tall, but his book counterpart is probably shorter. He's clearly taller than any man, but not the behemoth we see in this movie, which I'm sure he was mostly punched up for the larger-than-life blockbuster they were creating. Yeah, and so this one's really interesting, um, and thank you for vamping this uh, return to Dante uh, in the uh, intro, because uh, or the recap, rather, um, because this is a, a scene that is often compared to uh, a, a brief scene in Dante's Inferno, um, and I know I bring up Dante's Inferno a lot, is because Tolkien can absolutely quit while he's dead, but he, he should have not lied so much about how little influence he took from Dante, because it's all over this place, all over the place. Anyways, um, as Dante and Virgil, who's uh, Dante's guide uh, through through hell, um, uh, go descend through the various circles, they come upon Pluto, who is guarding 
uh, one of the circles of hell um, and uh, is, is basically this enormous foul creature uh, described very much like uh, the Balrog, although in significantly fewer words because the, the Inferno is a poem. Um, but at this, uh, this basically this like uh, border check, um, Pluto says, uh, well, th- this kind of now well-known line, which is uh, Pape Satan, Pape Satan, Aleppe. Uh, and if it sounds like absolute gobbledygook, uh, that is because it is. Uh, nobody has really been able to figure out what the hell that means. Although I guess it's kind of evocative of calling the Pope Satan. Who knows? Dante was an edgy lad. So maybe that was what he was into. But anyways, um, one of the key kind of moments of, or one of the key kind of messages of the scene in the Inferno is that um, there is this uh, the, this essential guard dog or like border officer of um, of, of Satan operating in hell, um, and though he barks quite loudly, he his bite is effectively meaningless, um, and that's because um, everything that is exists in 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 hell or Dante's vision of hell is ultimately ordered by God, um, and so uh, there is some sort of divine intervention um, that has brought. Uh, Dante into the Inferno. Uh, it's you know said to be like the influence of Beatrice, Beatrice who's up in heaven. But anyways, uh, Dante is there by God's will. Everything that exists in hell is also there by God's will. So even the things that are scary and meant to evoke fear or this like imminent punishment are ultimately not going to harm uh, you know the true believers and those who are like truly uh, either free of sin or willing to be free of sin and repent for their sins. Um, and this is you know <laughs> I could not be um, more of a polar opposite to what's going on in in this scene um which is there is this border guard essentially um in moria um or he's only really a border guard for for gandalf um and he is well he i don't know i'm gendering the fucking balrog the balrog <laughs> is like um very very active and not just active but also something that they ultimately can't really control in the same way and the thing and something they can't be sure about because this balrog exists like out with the like will of like God in in universe, um, and this is I think like kind of one of the the like key points um, of uh, kind of the the Lord of the Rings generally, and and like this this kind of moral universe that it creates and inhabits, which is that like um, evil can exist, um, and evil can kind of exist out with uh, the, the like logic and will of, um, of, of God. And, um, you have to be prepared for it essentially. And you have to have like a moral fiber that is stronger. Um, and if you do, then you can overcome these things, but you can't rely on it and you can't kind of rest on your laurels. Um, and I think that is like in this scene, especially, um, it looks very similar in some ways to how this scene plays out in the silent, uh, film version of the Inferno, um, which is called the Inferno and it's on, uh, YouTube. Um, it, it was done in 1911, um, and it is, it is quite like camp and hokey, um, but well worth the, the like hour and ten minutes it takes to to watch. Um, but it is very very similar in in how it's done. Although in the 1911 Inferno, it is literally just a guy who's like uh, sat closer to the camera than the actors who play Dante and uh, Virgil, and he's like just barking, um, obviously silently. Uh, so it's, you know, a bit hokier, but has that same kind of vibe and feel. And that is because there is this like similarity in, in the source material. I love that idea of the Balrog kind of pr- provoking these more metaphysical and existential struggles for the characters in the same way that I think uh, Sauron and Mordor are supposed to do. And I think one of the reasons Moria is so prominent and intense, both in the book and in the movie, is that we don't actually spend much time in Mordor, and Sauron is mostly a structuring absence. 
And even in the movies where you get more of a glimpse of Mordor because you can just cut to it and show Sauron directly as the great blazing eye in the sky, there's still something to address in this first movie specifically because we're not in Mordor or anywhere really close to it. And I think part of how you structurally solve that problem is by ramping up Saruman's presence and making him a visually identifiable villain. But also Moria works for this kind of metaphorical plunge into that that deeper shadow. It's that same sense of corruption of beauty, of a great thing gone to ruin. And now it belongs to this wrathful spirit of fire that will drag you down into the dark with it, which you could say is, is something, somewhat of what happens to Frodo when he travels to, Mor- to Mordor. And there's this great constant sense of escalation built into Moria in terms of the the monsters and obstacles that our heroes are facing. You, you face the the watcher in the water outside, but then you escape it. And then you have the, the cave troll who's a threat, seems to kill Frodo, but then he's okay. So you have this kind of tension and then whew, relief structure built into it. These narrow escapes against the minor bosses are just building you up for the big boss. And I just, I love the decision to have all the orcs just shriek and flee when they hear it growl, because that immediately lets you know what a big deal the Balrog is. All these orcs are about to massacre our heroes, and suddenly they're on the run. And it's it can be unnerving because it's it's this seems like their home now. This seems like their place, but suddenly it just looks like they're running from the real owner of Moria. And it's, it's emphasized when you have Boromir's fear. Is that, yeah, that, that great line. What is this new devilry? Like he's just exhausted with all these new things that he wasn't prepared for. And then when Gandalf says it's a Balrog, he immediately cuts to Legolas's face and he looks terrified. And that's perfect because even if you don't know what a Balrog is, you know Legolas is part of this this ancient uh, race that's uh, that thinks it's seen everything and knows all the history. So if he's terrified, that speaks volumes. And the, the, I love that that Gandalf line when he says to Aragorn, when Aragorn wants to go back up and fight the Balrog and Gandalf says, swords are no more use here. And because this is more of a, yeah, spiritual and metaphysical showdown. And it's the kind that Boromir, who is the ultimate swordsman, ultimately loses against the ring. So you just, you need a different set of tools to deal with this. I'm like, I I genuinely can't tell you, I'm like vibrating with excitement at you making that comparison because it's just connected something in my head, which is that um, in in the Two Towers, um, when, uh, in sorry, in the Two Towers book, when Sam and Frodo um, arrive in Ithilien and are um, captured or taken in by uh, Faramir and the Rangers, um, Sam has this line that like is the most puzzling line in the world to me. And uh, since the moment I read it for the first time, like a year ago now, um, it has just been like taking up free real estate in my head but sam says to faramir um you have like a very interesting air about you um and faramir says oh it's you know it's the air of the elves because faramir's got like quite a strong elvish history and also kind of the numenorean edine history and sam says no i've met the elves it's not the air of the elves your air is similar to gandalf which is such a like a mind fucking boggling thing for Sam to say for Tolkien to write and then to just never come back to about a character. And I think this is really fascinating because that you know this point that you just made here, which is that you know Boromir and his swords and his sword waving and his like martial valor couldn't have overcome this um, th- this 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 charge, this task, this quest in the way that that Gandalf has. But it also kind of raises the question um, of you know well now that we know that. Sam um, can identify Faramir as closer to a Maiar than an, than an elf, and obviously Gandalf, be, Gandalf being a Maiar, then if Faramir had actually answered the call to go to Rivendell, would this entire scene have played out very differently? Um, I recognize that as like a thought exercise that is probably not super interesting to anybody, but that is like you saying that just now has solved like a months long problem for me, and I'm just absolutely delighted right now. <laughs> That's great. I'd forgotten about that line from the books completely. So perfect, perfect synergy. <laughs> 
Yeah, now I'm thinking about uh, that line, swords are no more use here. And you were talking about how Moria is a stand-in for Mordor. They even have a very similar phonetic uh, sense to them. And, you know, Frodo in the books actually does not carry a sword through Mordor at all. Um, Speaking towards, you know, I think it speaks to like the essence of this fellowship and their mission because their mission was not to use the ring, uh, but rather to use stealth and subterfuge and to destroy the ring. Um, so I kind of like you tying that swords are no more use here in Moria to also what will take place in Mordor uh, two books down the road. So we'll transition over to the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, also known as Durin's Bridge. Uh, it's where our fateful showdown between Gandalf and the Balrog takes place. The slender, railless bridge is instant, instantly notable for its peril. The very thought of running full speed across it puts a chill in my veins. It vaguely reminds me of the bridge Indiana Jones has to cross to get to the Holy Grail, and this bridge might as well be invisible given how narrow it is. The bridge is a d- defensive strategy unto itself. No invading army can enter the East Gate and enter the Dwarodalf without moving single file across the bridge, completely open to defensive fire, and one wrong step meaning doom. Thus, it makes perfect sense for Gandalf to make his last stand here, which, let's talk about our wizard pal now. <laughs> we, we've been joking throughout our coverage that he's a covert dick, but in the text <laughs> of these films, he's very much our friendly grandfather mentor figure. That is, until Moria. Throughout the books, characters allude to the fact that Gandalf has fought many battles, but this War of the Ring is likely to be his greatest and his last. And those great battles start here, at least for us. Gandalf facing the Balrog seems Gandalf facing the Balrog seems both resigned and resolute. He knows this is not an enemy to be dealt with sword and steel. It's one of the primordial spirits of the world, something not unlike him. Perhaps even something Gandalf could have been, or still may be, if Sauron were to regain the Ring of Power once more. Knowing what we know retroactively about Gandalf's immense power, it should tell us all we need to know that his first instinct is to run in the face of the Balrog. And though he doesn't anticipate falling against the Balrog in the end, I do think in the moment Gandalf understands what must be done. Priority one, the Fellowship needs to get the fuck out of Dodge. Run, fly, flee, however you want to phrase it, he knows the company, most of all the ring bearer, must get out. Two, he delegates Aragorn as assistant to the regional manager. (laughs) Gandalf knows what priority number three is, but before he can drag that ticket to in development on his JIRA board, he's got to set his direct reports in motion. Aragorn, it's your turn to lead. Get them out of here and possibly take them the rest of the way. I'm putting my faith in you. And priority number three is finally defeat the Balrog. It still represents a great unchecked evil of the world, one maybe only a half dozen beings in Middle-earth are even able to face down, if that. It's a necessary side mission for Gandalf, one that unlocks future main story paths for him, story paths we will come to in the later two films. Throughout this scene, there's an oh shit Gandalf is something else sentiment running through both the audience and the fellowship. Our lovable gay stoner dad, who makes fireworks and tricks gardeners into being bodyguards, breaks out in a big way in Moria. The aforementioned staff and sword wielding, facing down the Balrog, he's not that kindly image that dominated the first half of the story. And this is the stepping stones to Gandalf the White, the fully realized Gandalf we'll meet in about a dozen or so episodes. Last bit about Gandalf is what it means for our fellowship characters that Gandalf seems to have perished. 
Aragorn is forced to step up, and we see him try to take charge here at the end. He gave as much time to Morn as he felt comfortable with, but they had to keep moving or else the orcs would eventually come out of their hiding holes. Boromir, already feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders, will struggle even harder to see hope. Gandalf's absence will be noted in Lothlorien, as well as into the next film. Sam and Frodo will debate whether Gandalf meant for them to take their path to Mordor. Gandalf represents a steadfast pillar of this little community, comforting and reassuring. He's a center of gravity, and his presence allows everyone else to orbit around him in something sembling sense. Now, with him gone, we get to see everyone else slowly spin out, eventually leading to the breaking of the Fellowship. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and again, I'm going to bring it back to Dante. And honestly, some of the shit that I say on this podcast is truly just me like trying to see if I can get Tolkien spinning like fast enough and continuously <laughs> enough in his grave that we could get like a perpetual motion machine. But Dante time. Um, so at the end of the Inferno, um, Dante and Virgil like climb up Lucifer, who's kind of like an automaton, um, and they make it out to the shores of Purgatory. Um, and Virgil, who's Dante's guide, can't go any further because he's obviously condemned for hell for being a dirty, rotten pagan. Um, and um, this is like in in the kind of three book structure of uh, the Divine Comedy, this is like a really significant changing of the guard for Dante the character, um, because theologically, like it means he's going to have to start like standing on, kind of on his own two feet. Um, and to stand on his own two feet to learn how to do that, he, he has to fumble around in the dark for, uh, well, the dark slash the fog, really, because he does actually quite literally fumble around in the fog at the base of Purgatory, the mountain that is Purgatory. Um, and I mean, this is really, really analogous both to uh, to Frodo um, and also to Aragorn um, in, in the movies and in the books. It's really just Frodo going through this kind of cris- crisis of leadership and like internal kind of psychological meltdown. Um, but, you know, Frodo, at least, he has to kind of reckon with the fact that that Gandalf has been this, um, you know, moral and and kind of um, intellectual foundation for him, really his entire life, because Gandalf is also kind of the base of uh, the the stories that or the story that uh, Bilbo tells that is recounted in The Hobbit, um, and you know, with this massive giant of his his you know, I won't say young because he's fifty, but his life uh, <laughs> gone, the floor is really dropped out from beneath him, and you know, he can trust Aragorn as long as he wants, but Aragorn can't really be his Virgil in the way that Dante was, uh, or sorry, in the way that Gandalf was. Um, and so Frodo now has to kind of like face uh, life really on on his own terms. And and in uh, in Purgatory, in, in the Purgatorio, uh, Dante's Purgatorio, Dante the character actually starts to go through a series of um, guides in, in Purgatory, um, which is effectively what Frodo and Sam do both as Gollum and as for a bit um, Faramir and then uh, some of the orc uh, orcs they like briefly encounter slash walk alongside. This is really really similar to like the structure of um, Purgatorio um, and I think um, also in some ways uh, spiritually reflects uh, both uh, Dante's uh, like social uh, transformation as a character in the Divine Comedy, as well as kind of his theological one. Although I will say um, I would have paid uh, a genuinely an untenable amount of money uh, to see uh, J.R.R. Tolkien use the Lord of the Rings to condemn a still living Pope to hell uh, like Dante did in the Inferno. So and there we are. And it, it hits so effectively because we just had the Gandalf Frodo scene 
right before they get into the depths of the Dwarodelf when they're talking about doing what you can with the time given to you and how you can wish the ring never came to you, but it did. And that that hurts because that's the connection that Frodo loved, but it's also like that's what Gandalf did his job as far as he's concerned with setting up Frodo as best he could, giving that giving him that that Frodo remembers at the end of the movie. And then each of them has to find their own way. This completely changes Frodo's story, but also Aragorn's and Boromir's, which would go completely different if, if Gandalf was still around. And there's also that that sense of there being a part of Gandalf they didn't know before. Like, I love that Gandalf only fully unveils himself, only starts talking about being a wielder of the secret fire, only when he's about to be defeated. Like, this is the only time the mortals would ever get to see him like this, is when he needs to be. Blazing like a star in contrast to the shadow all around the Balrog, looking like a gift from heaven, which is more or less what he is. And uh, you were talking earlier, Emily, about about the Inferno and about the, the silent movie influence. And many people have pointed this out, but Peter Jackson and company for the Gandalf Balrog fight are drawing heavily from Murnau's Faust, which is a classic that's, that's nearly a century old now, because time only goes one way, unfortunately. I'm just getting older every day. And it's, it's, it's the same scenario. It's a wizardly confrontation with the devil. It's got that same contrast of overwhelming shadow with flashes of light that you see in the older movie. The same angled compositions, the same dramatic, physically impactful cuts that just makes you feel it. And I love when, when blockbusters reach back to the silent era because I think blockbusters at their best work like silent films, trying to convey story and character purely through visuals, even exaggerated visuals to make those points. We were talking about Indiana Jones, and that was uh, heavily influenced by a silent era extravaganzas, especially this director, uh, Joseph von Sternberg. I recommend his stuff. You can find it on the Criterion channel, or if you're an old man like me, you still signs up for the Netflix DVD service. They got all his <laughs> stuff on there. And um, whatever you think of uh, Attack of the Clones, I, shamefully enough, kind of like it. That movie is, is definitely a big old love letter to Metropolis and a lot of other silent era epics in its design. But of course, this this isn't a silent movie, and Ian McKellen's delivery, his 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 vocal delivery, makes this scene as much as the cinematography does. And for me, this is maybe the best example in movies of how to sell the silly proper nouns of fantasy. Like the story I always always tell. Again, my mom reading things to me when I was a kid. She started reading to me the uh, the Prydane Chronicles, the uh, story for for young adults by Lloyd Alexander, and the the later books in that are still really good and hold up. But the first book. The way it starts is just like 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 a parody of how many capitalized words there are and how many place names and people's names you're supposed to know. So we just started laughing and couldn't get through it. And that <laughs> is a hurdle for some people with the genre. And this, I think, is an example of how to cut through it. Like Ian McKellen makes the flames of Arnor and Udun sound like the most important things ever. Like this is the real struggle of the story. This is who he's always been underneath. And you get that 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 just that ragged catharsis in his voice as he's dropping the veils. And he just looks, its he looks immovable. He looks like he's made out of the rock like an icon. So when he yells, you shall not pass, you believe it. And on that wonderful note, let's transition over to our film craft portion of this episode. I just want to take a second to highlight that even though fantastical, the violence in these films is quite graphic. As someone who grew up with Star Wars and the Ninja Turtles, I just hadn't seen something this raw from all ageish blockbusters. I'm used to Leonardo hitting foot soldiers with the blunted side of his two katanas. Star Wars is a little more violent, as decapitations are a humorous runner in that series, but it still remains cartoonish or stylized, and the lightsaber cauterizing wounds prevent them from being too gnarly, perhaps except when Obi-Wan offers to buy that dude a drink at Mos Eisley. But here it's just limbs, heads, squirting blood, blood on steel, blood on the leaves— as an edgy college boy, this legitimately geeked me out, a perfect balance to the outwardly sentimental parts of the story, which I also loved. 
It was a perfect alchemy. Also, what stands out compared to other things, our fellowship gets bloodied, tired, dirty, fatigued. It's not just people flipping around, skewering enemy jobbers in overly cartoonish fashion, even though it kind of is. It balances fantastical with grit in a really nice way, something I think the Hobbit movies lack and suffer for. Yeah, this is really where you can tell that it's a good thing they got Peter Jackson because his background, he made a lot of different kind of movies, but his a lot of his background was in, in horror movies and like especially like squicky comedic horror movies like Brain Dead, which was released as Dead Alive in the United States is a really good example of that. And that's where that Peter Jackson really comes out to play. And you can see you can see him at work at, in the prologue on Mount Doom, just the way the orcs are designed there and that that, that sense of scale. But uh, this is really where you see action being made by a horror fan, like the, the the fight in Balin's tomb with the camera swooping around Sam Raimi style. And yes, all those those loving, lingering shots on decapitation and maiming, which is just it's just wonderful about these movies. I love that when you get to the the climactic fight at Amon Hen and just the the way the camera just shows you Aragorn cutting the main Urukai's arm and then head off. It's just it's doesn't cut away. It just holds on it. I just love that. Right. So this is like so funny to me because these are not movies that I typically think of as like especially violent. And I think if you like asked me to put these movies on a scale, like zero being basically non-violent or like non-gory and 10 being incredibly violent and gory, I would probably put it closer to like the four or five. And I was kind of thinking about this. and I'm like, why is it that I have like just obviously desensitized myself so much to like the cartoonish violence that goes on in here? I think it's because I kind of grew up in the age of like ultra violence. Um, so the Matrix, the first Matrix came out uh, like 11 months after I was born. And then like the first movie that I really any remember any like promo material for was Kill Bill 2. Um, um, so, like, <laughs> I definitely grew up in an era of, like, uh, cinema where, uh, you know, in-your-face blood violence, uh, gore, viscera was, like, more the norm than not. Um, and I definitely remember thinking, like, oh, the Harry Potter films are very weird action films because there's not as much, like, blood spatter against the camera lens. Um, which is kind of, I guess, why when I came to these movies in uh, 2017, 2018 or whatever it was, they didn't stick out in my head so much. because I, Also because I'd seen Game of Thrones before before I got to that. So I was like, all right, if it's not literally Sean Bean decapitating a dude in slow motion within the first like five minutes of the the film, that it's not really violent. Um, but also, uh, I should, I should like now caveat everything that I've just said there um, to say that there is like one scene of violence in this series that really gets me as like, oh boy, that is a, a lot. And it's when um, Madril, who's like the... Rangers second in command. I don't know who the fuck he's meant to be, but anyways, he gets like speared by the uh, Oryx at Osgiliath, mm-hmm. um, and it is like slow and very obvious. And that was like the first one where I remember like old lady style clutching my heart, being like, "Oh, they showed this to children." <laughs> um, but yeah, but anyways, I think you're totally right on like laying down the kind of like schlocky horror element of it um and one of the things that this this really reminds me of and i'm so sorry if like there are people who have seen the movie i'm about to talk about and also quite like lord of the rings um because uh you know this movie is not necessarily one of the best movies of all time but it's a 1987 horror called the gate which i think like is it like overdue like some revisionist history i think is like actually quite a fun horror movie um but is a whole bunch of preteens it's, it's almost like a precursor to Stranger Things. Anyways, uh, a whole bunch of like preteens and teens uh, literally open up the gate 
to hell in their backyard through a hole in their backyard. Um, and <laughs> lots of bad things happen. The demons come out. The demons have lots of creatures. And um, there's a lot of fun stuff with like stop motion creature design. So, um, you know, demons will explode into smaller like creeping demons, uh, demonettes, I guess. Um, and it's all done in stop motion. So it kind of has that like almost Ardman, Wallace and Gromit feel to it. Um, but a lot of the shots and a lot of the movement of the like stop motion creatures um, really look similar to like how the orcs um, or I guess goblins or whatever you want to call them um, pour out of the ceiling in Moria in one of the shots where it's like all of these little awful <laughs> goblins <laughs> spilling out like blood from a wound um, and later uh, and we'll come back to this I guess and however many episodes it takes but there's a shot in uh, in in the gate where one of the kids the main main cast is like literally falling down a tunnel to hell and the way the camera frames him is pretty much identical to how Gandalf is framed in a couple of the shots at the start of the two towers and um, Anyways, all of this to say, uh, it is a fucking wild movie. Um, and if you've got, you know, because it's a proper 90 minute movie. If you got time this weekend or whatever, um, go watch it because um, it is galling and also fun and also like peak of 1980s uh, horror movies. And it's also a Canadian film. And I feel like there really aren't many of those. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, <laughs> stimulate the Canadian film industry, I guess. That's a great comparison. And yeah, that, that old school movie magic, you can definitely see that being blown up onto a huge scale with these movies. And yeah, that makes me think that maybe what we're talking about here with this portion of the movie isn't even violent so much as just gross. Like when you see like the black blood spurt out of an orc's neck after Aragorn yeah. decapitates him or that <laughs> shot where all the orcs are coming out of the hole in the ceiling like maggots. That's just, it, it just, it, it even more than, it's not even just shocking. It just makes you flinch a little bit from, from that yeah. kind of, that kind of very visceral quality. Even the way the orcs are designed, there's that one shot when the orcs are gathering around them where you just see one look right at the camera and it's like, it's eyes look like a cat and it just goes, <laughs> and like, that's, that that's just wonderful. And that's the kind of shot you could easily see being left out of a more pedestrian version of these movies, but I'm so glad it's there. Yeah. It's like the sense of texture that I think like horror directors have better than anyone else. Yes. There's a moment in the stairway scene that really sticks out to me and is a microcosm of why I love these movies. When they hit the gap in the stairs, orc arrows start landing at the Fellowship's feet. It's once again my boy Legolas' time to shine. The camera essentially cuts to a point of view shot from his vantage, spying the orc arrows coming from a cliff far above. Legolas knocks and looses. The camera travels with the arrow across the chasm and straight into an orc skull. God bless Elvish auto-aim. <laughs> what we see next is that orc slump over and fall off its perch, falling towards an unseen bottom. The flight of the arrow and the fall of the orc are just massive in scale and shows what kind of currency this fantasy story is going to trade in going forward. The expansive scope and scale of these films is undeniable, and this lone arrow shot really captures that for me. Yeah, it's that, that scale, that sense of hugeness without sacrificing intimacy. And like you, you're talking about the... The orc arrow, orc arrow is landing at the Fellowship's feet. And it's that crucial shot where it almost hits the hobbit's feet. And the hobbits being hobbits are, are barefoot. <laughs> so you see their hairy little feet. You see the arrow almost hit them. And it's like that that makes it feel very visceral and real so that your senses are primed for when you get that Legolas shot to just follow it across and, and go into the orc's head with it. 
And it's shifting from small scale to large scale, I think is what, what great blockbusters do. And it's really hard. Like, I think you see a lot of movies that handle one without the other. Some movies do really well on like the big splash panel action sequences, but then, you know, they cut to like a couple of people sitting on what is obviously a set with like some fake rubble and like you, you don't always do well. But yeah, that's, I think that's a big reason these movies work so well in theaters and still hold up as they go from small to big really smoothly. Yeah, I think it's also like one of these things where like the these movies and like I I mean I think one of my my critiques ongoing critiques of these films is that sometimes they are not as efficient as they maybe ought to be, but when they are efficient, they are incredibly efficient. And I think using something like an arrow shot to also do something like set building is one of these like tricks that cuz I've got a bit more of a theater background where I'm like this is the kind of thing that you would have if you've worked in that like literal three wall limitation before like where you only have so much that you can do. There's only there are only so many solutions to your problems thinking to use an arrow as effectively a way to like build out the scale and scope of your your set and really only using it in these like quite tightly shot uh uh frames is just like again a, a testament to the kind of like remarkable thought that that goes into almost all of the storyboarding for this film yeah i love the the theatrical comparison is really interesting and it makes me think about when i was rewatching this part of the movie for this episode i was thinking about dracula the 90s francis ford mm. coppola dracula mm -hmm. with gary oldman and how how that movie is just such a love letter to so many different kinds of craftsmanship and exploring what we and some of it does feel very theatrical in that it's like how can we make these physical planes move past each other how can we use our depth and create an illusion of even more depth and bringing that kind of theatrical quality to a more to a more cinematic mindset where you don't have the physical grounding of the stage, but you can push things a little more. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this film is basically in every way, like a precursor to the, what is it? it it's Shrek that they do at Disney world, the Shrek 40 X where they like squirt yeah. water in your face. Like exactly. this is everything but that. <laughs> oh man. Surprisingly, not the first time we brought Shrek up on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of, Giant. No, okay, I'm not even gonna try. Um, let's. We'll talk about how this film realizes the Balrog, and we can kind of break it up into distinct sections. The first is the Balrog's approach when the Fellowship first get hint of it coming. The whole "What is this new devilry?" moment. When the Balrog first announces its presence, the only thing we see is a burning light in the distance, far off flames in the shadows, but we see it growing brighter filling more and more the halls of Dwarodalf. It's almost as if it's pulsating as it draws nearer, moving between the columns and pillars. Um, and it heralds its arrival with light and fire, which is actually not unlike Gandalf. He just ends up using fireworks instead. Thank you. I am not adding this to my anti-Gandalf agitprop. Gandalf <laughs> is literally the Balrog. <laughs> Coupled with the dread in our characters' faces and dialogue, we know something truly terrible is coming. They'll use a fiery doorway a couple times to acknowledge the Balrog's approach, such as when they are making their escape down the stony steps. It's again that horror movie background of Peter Jackson's where you're so keyed into the audience's physical reactions moment to moment and giving you 90% of what's going on and crafting it so you know that the audience's mind will go wild with the remaining 10%. And I just, I love how abstract this is at first, that we don't, that the Balrog coming up through the the floor is not the first we see of it. It's it's nothing but that, that fiery shimmer. And honestly, this was a really big moment for me as a kid. And it really kind of made me aware of how effective that kind of subtle strangeness can be. And it was one of the first times I looked at a movie and was like, I'm not sure what it is I'm looking at exactly. And I just fell in love with that feeling. So a lot of the more kind of 
portentous and mysterious filmmaking that I would come to later, stuff like uh, Tarkovsky with his more kind of metaphysical wandering and you know everything is very abstract and poetic and stands in metaphorically for something else. A lot of that made sense to me at an intuitive level, I think because of scenes like this that I saw as a kid when I wasn't, I was being given something more abstract and something I had to make sense of at such a formative age. I uh, love the idea that uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the Balrog specifically was your gateway drug to Tarkovsky, and I right? feel like that's definitely <laughs> a brand new sentence. <laughs> this, is, this is Peter Jackson's Solaris, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all this foreshadowing aside, the Balrog does eventually appear. And when he appears, or it appears, I guess I should be careful of gendering it as well. <laughs> the charcoal black of its skin is almost indistinguishable from the black smoke that travels with it or the endless shadow of Moria behind it. It gives an ethereal sense to the Balrog as well, one not bound by the laws of the physical world. It makes it unknowable and thus all the more terrifying. The being is not without radiance, though. A streak of fire gives shape to its spine and its eyes and mouth are ablaze. Right. Yeah. And this is like, this is exactly what you're saying earlier, Emma, about like this, this uh, corruption of like good. Um, and and uh, because I'm a like ruthless pedant, um, I just want to bring up the fact that like uh, light and fire are both things that exist in universe as like creations of Aru and are both things that um, like, especially as far as the elves are concerned, are, are things that are inherently good. There's like a lot of like imagery in, for example, the Silmarillion surrounding, well, literally the Silmarillion surrounding uh Sorry, hang on, pause. Sorry, I'm going to explain why I said literally the Silmarillion, which is that uh, Silmar or Silmarion or Silmaril in uh, Sindarin and Quenya uh, equates roughly to uh, light uh, or like starlight. So the Silmarillion as like a book is like a book about uh, the title means a book about starlight. Anyways, with that context given, the elves in particular are really, really interested in this, this idea of light and the importance of it um, and, and how it really shapes their entire lives. So for something like uh, fire, which is the light giver in, in many ways, um, to be corrupted in such like a horrible way is really, really significant in universe. Um, and it really helps, you know, not necessarily with all of that context in the movies, but it does kind of unsettle this like base assumptions about what is good and what is inherently good and what is inherently evil. And if one of the most like sacrosanct things of all, which is light, can fall to evil, then, you know, what fucking hope is there for like a little wee hobbit? The camera zooms in on the Balrog's roaring mouth, almost as if it's being sucked in by a blast furnace. Mm. The camera then cuts to Gandalf, zooming in on his face in much the same way. It creates a sense that Gandalf is about to be sucked into the belly of the beast, which is at least metaphorically true, and he will fall through the guts of Moria here in a second. And just a side note, the Balrog's roar was created by pulling the cinder block across a plywood board and then digitally shifting the pitch of the resulting sound. And then the last part of realizing the Balrog for the film is the actual showdown with Gandalf. Before that, I love the shot of the Fellowship crossing the bridge of Khazad Doom. It's a single take that spirals around the bridge as the company passes over. It sets up the narrow path, the treacherous pitfall on either side, and just the limited amount of purchase any defender of the bridge would have. It very quickly orients us, the audience, with the geography and danger that Gandalf is about to find himself in. 
And we also get our best look at the ball at the Balrog here when his body quote unquote hardens to take on the gray wizard. <laughs> you can even spy wings on the beast, which apparently is a hotly contested choice that I couldn't give less of a shit about. Yeah, that's because it is boring shit for boring nerds. However, <laughs> as king of the boring nerds, I will now say uh, it's this whole does the Balrog have wings thing is like fundamentally boring and unhelpful as a as an argument. But the context of it is it's basically a question of like literalism versus is non-literalism and if you haven't heard uh, the term literalism outside of i guess like a supreme court constitutional uh, framework it is uh, essentially about like a reading of the bible that insists that everything that is written on the page is literally true and so typically this is the approach favored like by for example evangelicals non-literalism literally just means that like allegory symbolism metaphor these are all things that exist and you don't need to like just because the book says you know this man was a cow uh does not mean that the man was literally a cow anyways uh does the text original text say that the balrog has wings yes and no <laughs> it basically depends on whether or not you understand what the word like means so the quote in contention is this the Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on the staff in his left hand, but in his other hand, Glamdring gleamed, cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. So, you know, it does indeed say the word wings, but it does say like wings, not these are literally wings. Anyways, whatever. The point is moot because the wings look cool as shit in the film and it would be endlessly boring to take such a like a well-designed creature out of the film for sake of a minor point about book accuracy. Which also brings me to another hobby horse of mine, which is like <laughs> there's a question about why and when nitpicking capital B, capital F book facts matters. Like in an instance like this, almost nothing of the book's intended messages, themes, symbolism, yada yada yada, whatever, is hindered by the addition of the wings to the Balrog. The fundamental story does not change. So why the fuck does it matter? Why does this merit an argument? There are obviously like valid things that bitch like to bitch about with these adaptations, but I want to strenuously argue that those things are the things where something significant about the underlying point of the book is hindered or abridged, or where things of worrying politics are added in, and not pedantic bitching about creature design. Who actually cares? That's it. <laughs> And then, real quick, uh, just because uh, I uh, did some reading for the first time in my life uh, and found out something cool, which is that um, this film shoot basically couldn't afford, well, not couldn't afford, but for some reason didn't have a slow motion camera available to them. Uh, for those who don't know, slow motion cameras are incredibly expensive. Uh, and, you know, not that this is a film that was necessarily doing things on a shoestring budget, but sometimes you have to make certain calls. Anyways, whenever they wanted to have slow motion in the film, they literally had to just film it with a normal camera and then slow down the frame rate. Um, and you can see kind of bits and pieces of that uh, here, um, especially when they're dealing with like the broken stairway and things are falling from the, not the sky, but the ceiling uh, straight through the uh, stairwell, the stairway bridge. Um, and then my other thing, uh, because I lack self-restraint, is that I was going through like the 4K remaster of this film. I think it's the Blu-ray one. Um, I mean, I know it's Blu-ray one because I definitely bought it and own it. I wasn't uh, watching it through questionable means. Um, I don't have like anything necessarily against 4K or like remasters. Uh, the Star Wars special specialized editions haven't necessarily turned me against that sort of thing. But I'm also like, these movies were like, oriented and created with 
what an audience in 2001 would have been able to see at the cinema and what they would have been able to see on uh, their TV screens at home. Um, and I don't necessarily see the like merit or utility of having done this 4K remaster because I think it actually does kind of weaken some of the effects, not in like a noticeable way and it doesn't really ruin the whole film, but I'm like, why is this necessary? Um, it's kind of like the remaster of Empire, the Empire Strikes Back on Disney Plus, where you can see like New York, New York on the bottom of Luke's uh, <laughs> lightsaber when he's in the like abominable snowman cave. And it's like, it raises this fundamental question for me of like, yes, you can have these things. You can see straight to the bottom of every pore on every single actor's face. But like, why do you need to? <laughs> what does this actually enhance about your movie going experience that you don't have with like ultra, ultra high quality instead of five times ultra high quality? Anyways, niche bitch. But uh, in this uh, version or in this scene on the 4K Blu-ray rip, uh, it's just a little, a little grating. Talking a little bit about the music now. Um, we get some more of that chanting music uh, done by the Maori uh, throat singers and grunters uh, during the stairwell scene. Uh, the meter rhythm is faster here, and combined with some big drums and more metallic-sounding percussion standing in for the orcs, these scenes have a very specific driving pace to them, which allows the musical motifs to climax into the fellowship light motif, which is used twice in these sequences as a victory lap. Uh, to accent the score with that main fellowship melody that work both as a victory cheer and a bookend. We hear it once when they clear the chamber of Mazarbul of orcs, and again when the fellowship successfully navigates the stairs. I love the rhythmic chanting in this part of the movie. I remember how much it, it excited me and, and terrified me when I was a kid watching in the theater. And you first hear it when we're, we just seen that, that shimmer of curtain, that shimmer of fire, and we're zooming in on Gandalf and his eyes are shut tight and he's, he can sense he's just, he's putting his mind, he's putting his wizard powers out there, trying to perceive what's behind that curtain. And you just, you just hear that first chant, oh, oh, and it, it feels like, like the Balrog is chanting inside Gandalf's mind. It's just letting him know what he's dealing with, saying hello, old friend. And then later when you, when you get to the stairs, it, it, that, that, that rhythm kicks in and it sounds like a, like a working song, like something the dwarves would sing while creating Moria and, and jamming their picks into the rock. Like a much more metal version of, of Hi-Ho, the song they sing in, in Snow White. <laughs> I remember uh, Tom Waits did a cover of that song like 10 years or so ago. And it was, you know, just, just more grim and bleak and noisy the way Tom Waits would make it. And I just think about him muttering, we don't know what we dig them for. And I, that's, that's what I, I felt like when I rewatched this scene. Like this is, this is the song the doors would sing right before they unleashed Shadow and Flame down in the deep. The music that plays when Gandalf falls is amongst the most memorable for me. It doesn't have the bombast or mirth or melancholy of some of the more prominent leitmotifs, but the combination of sound and sight is powerful in combination. After several minutes of chanting, percussion-driven march of battle, all sound seems sucked out of the world. As Gandalf's body fades into the darkness, all that emerges is the sad, angelic wail. By, by itself, it's not loud, but the words of our heroes and the orc arrows landing at their feet barely make an audible sound. The grief is too near. Everything slows down. We get almost a minute of slow motion here. Everyone's shocked at what just transpired, the flight from the orcs, and the mourning on the east side of the Misty Mountains, all in slow-mo. The world has stopped moving. And with it, we get to take a good look at everyone in this moment. Merry and Pippin are falling over each other in tears. Gimli is a ball of rage. Legolas is lost. And Frodo, my dear Frodo, 
When Aragorn finally turns to him, we see him almost mindlessly wandering away, only to shoot back the saddest look. The camera lingers on Elijah Wood's face for a good moment here, allowing a single tear to form in his eye. And all of it is just so good. The score, the sound mixing, the camera technique are all working in concert to create this overwhelming sense of grief felt by the characters and the audience. Our guiding light is gone, not only as a companion, but as perhaps our most powerful ally against evil. That is to say, in the words of WandaVision, what is grief but Gandalf disappearing? Boo! (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. I love love everything about this. Like, the fact that we... The music prevents us from hearing the hobbits crying, so you just see their their tear-wracked faces and their mouths as they sob. The way Gimli is just like so desperate to get back in there and fight as Boromir's holding his back, because that's that's what has happened every time the dwarves lose Moria. They're just desperate to get back in there and continue the fight. This happened with Thorin's family when you read the backstory. So we're, we're seeing that cycle start again. Now we have Balin and Gandalf to avenge, and we're going to go back in there and die for them, and then someone's going to come avenge us. And, uh, you know, Orlando Bloom, as many people have pointed out, is kind of overpowered by the other performers in the fellowship. He's doing his best. But this is one moment that people point to where he really handles it well, the way he just looks lost, as you were saying. the way it's, You get the sense Legolas thought the rules prevented Gandalf from dying. And now he's having to really reckon with mortality, which you don't always necessarily have to do if you're an elf. And this is Boromir. It maybe is most sympathetic. Like I love when he tells Aragorn, give them a moment for pity's sake. And you can really tell he's feeling for his fellow companions, even though Boromir like probably knew and liked Gandalf the least of anyone in this group. <laughs> but even he is feeling this pain. And Frodo, I, you know, I think you said it, I know it's just that perfect punctuation mark for the scene. Really, though, on, on rewatch, I think this is Aragorn's scene. And I think Viggo Mortensen nails it here. I like him best as a performer when he's just he's just ice cold. Like, my favorite performances of his are in the movies he made after this trilogy with uh, David Cronenberg directing A History of Violence and Eastern Promises. And in those, he plays ruthless killers with just only a flicker of humanity left. And he does that so well. He, he tightens up his jawline and he empties out his eyes. He's, he's just, he's terrifying. And this is the moment in Lord of the Rings where he gets to play that guy swallowing his grief so he can lead. And he does it so completely that he seems kind of brutal. Like he just, everyone else is crying and he's just wiping his sword clean and then moving on like the blood was never there. And he's the one who has to break the silence and speak over the soundtrack, get them up. And that's the person Gandalf had to be. And so that's the person Aragorn has to be now, which I think just leads just so beautifully to the end of this first movie when he he lets Frodo go on his own and he kind of he sees that, oh, my leadership also involves giving up my authority and knowing when I should not be in charge. And that's, that's, that's something very important for the future king of everything to keep in mind. So now we'll do our token, token book analysis. And the first thing I want to talk about is a pretty minor change, but just want to call it out a bit. In the books, it's an orc chieftain who stabs Frodo, not a cave troll. I don't think this is a very important change, except in the scope of adaptation, maybe. The trolls don't really have a presence in The Lord of the Rings, at least the Fellowship, besides some passing references or statues in the background. To me, the thinking here is, well, we might not ever get a chance to really do a big troll set piece, so why not make it the center of attention here? Not only does it make it just everything seem bigger and more cinematic, but it gives Sean Bean the opportunity to deliver that iconic line. 
And I love that line, and I think it's really brilliant and really uh, well-delivered, but, you know, as I have to be this person on everything, um, I find this adaptation change really interesting um, because I think there's kind of, um, like, a really interesting wider conversation to be had about the scale and scope of knowledge of the men in the books versus in the films. In the books, it's evident that there's, like, a lot that the men just really don't know about. They've lost a lot of the understanding of lore, or it's kind of trickled its way up to the top, and only a select few really know what's going on outside of the borders of of, of Gondor or of Bree, um, and they are very, very, like, cloistered people. You know, for example, in the books, they don't know about the ring, and they certainly don't know about Isildur's relationship to it, and um, they don't really know more than bits and pieces about the elves, enough to be scared of them, enough to not want to interact with them but not really a huge amount more. And actually, there's a lot of evidence to say that the Rohirrim probably don't even realize that uh, the elves still exist at all. The men also don't really know a huge amount about like the dwarves. Um, and so in the books, time and time again, it's emphasized that they, they've lost contact with you know knowledge of the world, really, beyond what they've got right in front of them. Um, and that's actually kind of like a huge theme in the books. Like the mannish loss of contact with the past and their history um, has made you know men lose their way, or at least according to Faramir. Um, and I'm not actually sure. Well, not 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 actually sure. Has nothing to do with it. I know that I don't think that interpretation is correct. I think he's dead wrong there. Um, but it is something that Tolkien using Faramir as his mouthpiece brings up over and over, which is this loss of uh, you know contact contact with the world, but also loss of contact with what makes them them. Has has really negatively impacted them. In the films, uh, there's basically none of this. Um, like, Boromir from the off knows about the ring. Um, he apparently knows quite a lot about Lake Isildur and his relationship to the ring. Um, and he knows enough, not like not just enough about cave trolls to know that they exist, but to be basically like sarcastically weary of them, um, which is like a huge change in like epistemological scope for the men. It says that they know a lot more about the world um, than than maybe they're letting on or maybe what they're reacting to. And so if they are like aware of all of these things and if they're aware of cave trolls and the elves and the ring, then their folly is basically infinitely greater um, because their long period of non-engagement with the world beyond their borders is not just like a like an act of kind of ignorance. It's like an act of almost like active malice. And in some ways, I think, um, justifies a lot of what uh, Gladiel says in her prologue. Um, although now that I've kind of laid this out, I am going to work on the contrarian take for uh, why like mannish isolationism is uh, good and elven isolationism is bad and evil. <laughs> so stand by. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. I've actually never thought about it quite like that, probably because I just don't think that hard like you do. Um, but it. To me, it was kind of like a cave troll or a troll would just be something that Boromir as like a six-year-old lad was read to by Denethor when he was a much better dad <laughs> than we see him as these films. So I, that's kind of how I think of it. But yeah, no, I think you're completely spot on with the theme about the books is about a lot of the loss of knowledge um, and kind of a disconnection from the rest of the world. And I never really put that, like I never held that belief up to this moment and tried to make sense of that. I think that's really fantastic. So we'll take some time now to talk even more about the Balrog, and we'll do a little bit of history here as well as talking about his breed, race, eh, well, who knows. Huh. The Balrog was once a Maiar, a spirit that existed before the world had been shaped. It had been corrupted by Morgoth and would go on to fight in many wars for the first Dark Lord. After Morgoth's defeat, the Balrog would flee and find refuge below the Misty Mountains. 
where it lay hidden for about 5,000-ish years before Durin IV awoke it in the Third Age 1980. The much-mentioned dug too greedily and too deep is referring to that. The dwarves would abandon Moria within the following year. Now, there are others of its kind, uh, and I believe the word here is Valarakar, which Emily can correct here in a second in terms of pronunciation. One of the other Balrogs we definitely hear about is Gothmog, which again is from books that Emily is going to nicely condense for us on this podcast. (laughs) And they were believed to be seven at most, according to Tolkien. Yeah, and so that fact is really interesting because in the uh, fall of Gondolin, which was written and then basically never revised by Tolkien himself, and um, there are like literally a metric fuck ton of Balrogs. I think within uh, the one, well, the, the siege, the battle that's mentioned, um, Glorfindel kills like three, and Ecthelion of the Fountain gets five, and even some of the men at various points kill Balrogs, so they are like a much more a level down, lower level kind of mini boss than they are uh, at any other point in either the Silmarillion or in Lord of the Rings um, and certainly what we see in the movies. Um, and, and so I think there's definitely like um, an element as um, as we briefly briefly spoke about in uh, one of our previous episodes, like the fluidity of Tolkien's Legendarium and how this is like truly one man's life life's work. Um, and so there are things that are going to contradict one another and things that are going to change and some things like the fall of Gondolin that is going to be very, very difficult to like place into the wider canon because it gets written once. Tolkien never really expects it to ever get published. And then, you know, 20 odd, 20, 30 odd years later, it does get published and, you know, awful pedantic nerds like me are desperate to fit it into something sensical. And, you know, sometimes it just don't work like that. Um, However, some things that do work uh, and do work very well are some of the uh, important Balrog killers. Or actually, uh, because I am spiteful, bitter and spiteful, I'm going to start with someone who did not kill a Balrog, uh, but in fact got his uh, head kicked in by one in tragic but also slightly funny fashion, who is, of course, Feanor. Um, and... Uh, Fanor <laughs> has has his fun, uh, launches his siege on Angband, which is uh, uh, Morgoth and Sauron's fortress. Uh, the Balrogs come out to to help to play, and Gothmog in particular comes out to play and have a good time and gets a little overenthusiastic and beats the shit out of Fanor, um, and he eventually uh, kills uh, well, or dies from his wounds, uh, and it is one of the interesting kind of uh, middle points of uh, the the history of the Noldoran elves because Feanor is this really strong <laughs> figure, uh, this uh, uh, point of uh, influence, and suddenly he's gone, and there's a bit of a power vacuum, and his uh, uh, I-, I was gonna say like well-meaning sons, but they're definitely not well-meaning. Some of them are well-meaning. <laughs> some of them try. Uh, his uh, poor little meow meow sons have to like suddenly figure out how to cope with his loss, and it's because this Balrog. Gothmog has taken out one of the key players of uh, of of world history and politics, um, and that really I think helps to like start build up the scale of what the fuck these things are like. Um, it also killed uh, Gothmog. Also killed Fingon, um, and this is just gonna be like a lot of contactless bullshit for people who haven't read the Silmarillion. But Gothmog getting both Feanor and Fingon must have been like a shit awful day for Maedhras, Um at some point, we will go through that, I assume. I will find some way to shoehorn it in. But yeah, it's just grim, grim stuff. Um, Gothmog, in return, was later killed by Ecthelion of the Fountain at the fall of Gondolin. Um, and at the final kind of accounting, the like published accounting, um, Glorfindel also gets one. Um, so when I laugh about uh, 
uh, Gandalf basically getting his shit kicked in uh, and Glorfindel being like, yo, sup, I'm great. Uh, this is what I'm talking about. And it should be noted that Glorfindel does also die, but he does it in a much prettier fashion because he's Glorfindel. And then, <laughs> uh, I think we now have to do the inevitable, which is to talk about how these scenes uh, vary, alternate, alternate, change, adapt from the from the books. Um, and there are really two major uh, changes that that I'm interested in talking about, and you will definitely hear the agenda come through loud and clear here. Um, but one of them is is the scene of Gandalf uh, on the bridge of Khazadun. Um, and in the books, it's like really like an infinitely less frantic scene. Um, it's more like insidious than high intensity. And because we've got kind of like a horror theme going for this episode, um, the best way I can explain the contrast between uh, the book and the film scene is like the difference between Robert Eggers' The Witch uh, and uh, James Wan's The Conjuring. Hmm. So like The Witch is kind of slower, calmer. Um, a bit more uh, like uh, molasses y almost. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you're the guys in Boston who, what, what was it, like 200 years ago, who see the wave of molasses coming for you, it's probably not the fastest moving thing you've ever seen, but it's still scary. That is the witch, and that is also the scene in the book. The film is a little bit closer to The Conjuring, and I know people have like a really like negative take on The Conjuring, but I think it's a brilliant horror film, and I think it's a lot of fun. But anyways, it's, you know, definitely more like fast paced and frenetic. And that is more akin to the movie version. And they're both like incredibly um, intense scenes and they both do basically the same thing. But there's also such like a gulf tonally between them that I do think it's actually kind of um, worth uh, pointing out here. Um, and I also think it's really interesting that um, the the kind of old nature or the way that Gandalf looks in the book is definitely played out more because there's even a, a throwaway comment about how Gandalf looks older in the moments before he's like, you know, murked by the Balrog uh, than he ever has before. Um, and, you know, there is uh, an attempt on some of this in, in, in the movies. He definitely looks more haggard and more exhausted, but he doesn't necessarily at any point seem like he's failing or breaking. I think the, the word that they literally use in the book is withered. Um, there's not really the same amount of that in, in Ian McKellen's performance, and that's not like a knock against it. It's just this really interesting kind of um, change. And then also because, um, and you can tell that I have to take Adderall to make it out of bed each morning because I went through and counted the exclamation points in the paragraphs that comprise the scene. Uh, and there are only eight exclamation points in the 12 paragraphs. Um, and four of them are from Aragorn and Boromir, who are like histrionic anyways, at every point <laughs> in the books. Um, and even when Gandalf is yelling, I think he says, uh, you cannot pass three times and only like one, I think, actually gets an exclamation point. So that is the like level of like somberness uh, that we're getting um, out of this scene in the book. And then um, I also just want to flag here something that we're inevitably going to come back to, which is the the kind of baptismal theme symbolism. Um, I'm not going to say allegory because while I am trying to make Tolkien Tolkien's ghost miserable and haunt me, um, I'm not really going for it that hard. Um, but um, there's this really interesting read on on this scene, um, which basically says that well, this scene and also Tolkien's works in general, which says that Tolkien uses uh, caves and caverns as part of like a womb and tomb motif. So caves symbolize both death and rebirth. Um, and Moria is actually both of these at once. Um, and the reason this connects to the sort of 
baptismal overtones is that for Christians, um, baptism is understood as kind of both a death and a birth. Um, and Moria basically fulfills this function for Gandalf and also in some ways the wider fellowship. So um, like the lake um, of the Watcher in the Water at the start of Moria and the Mirror Mirror at the exit of Moria both effectively act as like a baptismal font for Gandalf and the fellowship. Um, we'll definitely come back to this later because I think this whole like um, baptismal theme that you get with Gandalf is is something that's really interesting and one of the the ways in which the the kind of um, religious overtone, well undertones, overtones, whatever of uh, Tolkien's thinking, if not necessarily his like active writing, is unable to be kind of annexed from these films, which is interesting given the kind of more atheist agnostic nineties. And then the other thing as part of my agenda, my propagandizing is the question of Elendil and Gondor. So in the book, uh, during this scene, both Aragorn and Boromir whip out their uh, battle cries. Um, and Aragorn's battle cry, which you hear so often and drives me up the fucking wall, is Elendil. And Boromir's is Gondor. As Gandalf falls, they both cry out their respective battle cries. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think this is tremendously revealing of their characters and also of what their their priorities are and what Gandalf is to them. So to Aragorn, uh, Gandalf is essentially his key to taking the throne of Gondor and effectively becoming as important as his ancestor. And, and before you think I'm just needlessly agitating, he straight up confirms that this is true at his coronation in Return of the King, where he says... By the labor and valor of many, I have come into my inheritance. <laughs> Fucking trust fund babies, man. Anyways, um, in token of this, I would have the ring bearer bring the crown to me and let Mithrandir set it upon my head, if he will. For he has been the mover of all that has been accomplished, and this is his victory. So, there it is. Gandalf is just his, like, um, what is it? Is it Peter Mandelson? Um... Yeah, I think it is Peter Mandelson to 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 Aragorn's Tony Blair, um, and I will stand by that until I die. Um, and then Boromir, obviously, in contrast, is uh, sees Gandalf as basically a means of saving and defending Gondor, and and so his first thought when he sees that Gandalf is about to fall is the thought of his kingdom and his country and everything that could potentially come to him because this towering figure is uh, dropping thousands of feet, uh, Emperor Palpatine style, into the abyss. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm now going to pose another question to you. I posed you one earlier, if, you know, Balrogs having wings matter that you <laughs> answered so well. So I got another one for you. What is this wielder of the secret flame of Anor shit that Gandalf's on when he's fighting the Balrog? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I hate this because it's in the book and in the, the movie. And it just like... I think what it is, is like, for me, a, a bit of how I rationalize this is that like Gandalf is actually starting to freak out and he just blurts out whatever <laughs> shit comes to his head first. <laughs> but like the secret flame of Anor, like basically means sweet fuck all. Um, Anor is the sun and, and it's you know, the sun. It like by its nature does not have a secret flame. Like it's just a <laughs> big ball of fire in the sky. Um, and in a kind of lore-based context, uh, the sun is pushed forward in the sky by the Maya Aryan, who is a spirit of fire. And the reason she was picked for this job is because she herself was so bright and like like literally physically so bright, kind of this like elder Tor. Um, uh, 
it it was like the, the basic call was like you are literally physically putting out too high of a wattage to stay among us what if we put you in the sky and have you go across the sky to bring light at night uh, or to bring daytime um, and then we have some dude chase you uh, to bring nighttime uh, and the sexual politics of that are fucking wild. But anyways, um, Aryan couldn't be corrupted by Melkor, which is also significant. So the sun itself is kind of this incorruptible thing. Um, really, I think when you like push past the purple prose uh, and get to what Gandalf's uh, adult brain is probably trying to refer to, it's probably Narya, uh, which is the uh, sapphire ring. Not sapphire. Uh, <laughs> sapphire is not red. Um, the, the the basically the ring uh, that Gandalf wears. Okay, no, that's fascinating. I'll take those <laughs> answers as canon that it's basically just Gandalf being blustery. The next time my cat Gendry tries to you know be fresh with one of my guests, I will just start telling him I am the wielder of the secret flame of Anor, and hopefully that works to scare him off. You will have just as much legitimate legitimacy as Gandalf, who's just making it up. <laughs> And I think that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Before we do our regular sign-off, Emmett, thanks for joining us. Please tell the world where they can find you. Thanks so much for having me. It was an absolute delight. I've been looking forward to it. And so, yeah, you can find me at Poor Quentin, P-O-O-R-Q-U-E-N-T-Y-N on Twitter. And you can find the Nauticast, the podcast I do with my buddy Jeff Hartline. You can find us at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter. You can check out all our available episodes on Podbean, Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F dot Podbean dot com. And our Patreon, patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F is where you can get early access to our episodes, bonus episodes, and a whole bunch of great benefits besides. So if you want to hear a me talk endlessly about A Song of Ice and Fire, much less succinctly than I do here, uh, check that out for sure. Yeah, it's great. I highly recommend you follow his podcast as well as subscribe to their Patreon. Maybe we can get those Theon Greyjoy episodes coming sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me ruthlessly agitating against the cruel dominion of Gandalf and other <laughs> objectively good guys at JRR Tweeting. That she is. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Not the last Simpsons reference today.